Hi, and welcome to Why Do We Do That, a psychology podcast that deconstructs human behavior from the perspectives of social scientists, psychologists, and others that use applied psychology in their work. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Moyer. In this episode, I sat down with Dr. Caitlin Woolley to discuss her work on consumer behavior. Caitlin holds an MBA and PhD from the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. She is currently an Associate Professor of Marketing at the SC Johnson Cornell College of Business. Her research has been published in top journals in marketing and psychology, including the Journal of Consumer Research, the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, and Psychological Review. Her writing also appears in the Harvard Business Review, and her work is regularly covered by outlets like the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and NPR. Caitlin has won several awards and honors for her research, including the Rising Star Award from the Association for Psychological Science, the Young Scholar Award from the Marketing Science Institute, and the Early Career Award from the Society for Consumer Psychology. Caitlin and I had an in-depth discussion about the goals and motives that underlie consumer behavior. One of the takeaways I had from our talk is that our brains can be very sneaky when making choices about which products to buy. Sometimes we think we're being consistent with our values, but in reality, we may have some blind spots in our assessments of information that are covertly influencing our decisions. Her work fits nicely within a broader idea in psychology relating to the battle between our heads and our hearts. Another idea that stuck with me from our chat is that companies love to tap into our identity in order to generate loyalty and a favorable image. The unfortunate part is that without critically examining the decisions we make in the marketplace, whatever thought or feeling we've been conditioned to associate with that company will take precedence in our minds, regardless of objective reality. Consequently, we could end up harming a particular personal goal rather than helping it. The holiday season is in full swing, so if you're getting ready to do some shopping and want some insight into how to make better buying decisions, this episode is for you. Enjoy. All right, today I am here with Caitlin Woolley. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks so much for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure. So today we're going to be talking a lot about consumer behavior and consumer decision-making. So uh, a lot of your research looks at consumer behavior uh, from the lens of making a series of decisions, right? So if you're at the grocery store, you're constantly making decisions. If you're browsing Amazon, it's sort of these individual decisions that you make when buying things. Um, and so your research shows that there are all kinds of different motives interacting when, you, when we're going through this process. So why don't you start by giving an overview of some of these motives that are competing when consumers are trying to make decisions about goods and services? Yeah, definitely. I think uh, an interesting place to start is sort of at the grocery store, like you're saying, because uh, I think when you're making food choices, there's often a lot of different considerations that are coming into play. Um, so you might want something that's going to taste good. You might want something that's going to be healthy. Uh, definitely, I would say convenience is a huge factor, right? People want something um, to eat that's gonna be quick. Uh, but then, you know, aside from these sort of basic level of motives that people might have when making those types of decisions, they might also think about decisions where it's going to influence others. So maybe you're buying something for your family, right? And then you have all other types of motives that you need to take into account. So it's not just what you think is going to taste good, but also, you know, is your partner going to like it? Will your kids like it, for example? And so very quickly, uh, it becomes complicated, I would say, to navigate these different choices that we make because it's not just a single factor, right? I'm hungry, let me grab something. It becomes a multitude of different motives and needs that we're trying to satisfy uh, and figuring mm -hmm. out how best to satisfy those different options. Now, is there a is there a default motive? I mean, I, I, 
it seems like there might be, but at, at the same time, a lot of it might depend on uh, on the state that you're in when you're shopping. You know, people say, you know, never go uh, food shopping when you're hungry because it will it will bias your decisions. But I mean, is there a default mode? I guess to the extent that there's a default mode, I think it's probably more impulsive. So people are probably leaning towards things like, how can I find something quick or, or easy or convenient or tasty? Um, and that's why you often see like people trying to shop with a list right when they go to the grocery store, for example, where they're trying to pull themselves out of that maybe immediate like present focus uh, or even like you're saying, right, if you eat before you go to the grocery store, maybe that will help you not be as impulsive. And so I think we're always as humans, right, we're always do like dueling with this self who wants to make maybe more immediate or rash decision, more impulsive decision. And then our other self that maybe is more long-term focused, you know, cares about how much is this going to cost or how is this going to affect my waistline, for example. Mm -hmm. And so trying to um, navigate, you know, even within ourselves, these sort of conflicting motives that we have. So a lot of your work kind of uh, dissects uh, this this decision making process, and some of your work shows uh, some some ways that we can think about these decisions to help keep us on track. Um, and it, it all kind of focuses in on this uh, dynamic between uh, what psychologists call extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation. So this back and forth between uh, some sometimes we make decisions because we have. Uh, things that are inherently that, that we inherently like we, we make decisions you know i like eating this product it tastes good versus extrinsic reasons which are more external which is i shouldn't be eating this product because i'm trying to stay on a diet or something like that um, could you talk a little bit about what your research has shown uh, with respect to um uh, how, how to think and uh, how to think about these decisions so that we can have better outcomes yeah, so I would say a lot of what I study is trying to navigate goals. So thinking about some of these choices and and trying to pursue um, specific goals that you might have. And so when you think about a goal, I would say that's where we're thinking probably more like long-term focus and often extrinsic. And so by that, I mean, it's thinking about like the, the outcome, right? What you should do, what you ought to do, right? I ought to eat healthy. I ought to maybe save money. Um, I ought to, you know, find something that's like the most nutritious potentially. Uh, and then our intrinsic motives are maybe a little bit more focused on taste. Uh, but what's interesting, I think, um, in the work that I'm showing is that often a lot of times it's not really, it's not pitting extrinsic versus intrinsic. So it's not like I want the cookie versus like I should have the apple. But oftentimes um, decisions for our goals can have kind of both components. And so we can think about you know, you're going out to dinner and you can find a meal that's both healthy and tasty, right? It's It doesn't have to be a trade-off, but oftentimes you kind of think about it in terms of trade-offs. Um, so one, one of the things I find is if you can take more of a holistic kind of perspective and try and not just think about the outcome, like the long-term goal that you're aiming for, but thinking about how can the process of reaching that long-term goal be enjoyable or be intrinsically rewarding, that's actually going to help set you up for success more. And so instead of taking, I would say, like a, a typical approach, which, which people often do when they're setting goals, like I'm going to get the healthiest thing, uh, thinking about it in terms of both offering extrinsic and intrinsic uh, benefits is what's most useful. So when I first uh, started looking into uh, some of your work, it was a little surprising because one of my one of my first thoughts was if I'm making a, a food decision and the idea is that uh, you know it's important to focus on uh, some of the short-term benefits of the we'll just call it the healthy the healthy choice at a, at a restaurant or something like that. So maybe if I'm you know deciding between a, a giant bowl of spaghetti, which I really want versus the salad, I should focus on, well, one of the short-term benefits of the salad is that it, it doesn't, uh, it, I'll have more energy because I won't feel all, uh, uh, heavy after, after the meal. Um, it, it, what's surprising is it, it seems as though by focusing on the, those 
short-term benefits of the healthy choice that you'd be creating this sort of David and Goliath scenario where the taste would always win. But you're saying that that's, that's not necessarily the case. So I'm saying, I guess, when I'm thinking about it, I'm not thinking about choosing between like the spaghetti and the salad. Because I do think there, if you're focused on the short term, uh, you know, the spaghetti is probably going to win out because it's a little bit more tasty. So I'm saying contingent on having, you know, decided I'm going I'm to get something healthy from this menu. And maybe I'm choosing between the kale salad uh, and, um, you know, I don't know, something that's oh. the I don't know, salmon with spinach or something, right? So mm-hmm. I'm already sort of thinking about different healthy options. I've kind of focused myself on that. Often what happens is people think, what's the most, like the healthiest thing that I can get, right? They they just try and maximize on the health. And so maybe I'm going to just get this, the kale salad and I won't even get dressing on it. And I'll ask them to hold the cheese and I'll just get that to eat because I'm trying to be healthy. And then that comes and it's not tasty at all. And so maybe I eat a couple bites and then later I go home and that's when I might overindulge in something else. And so I'm saying sort of when you're thinking about different healthy options, how can you incorporate taste into that so that you can actually you know, choose something and eat something that's going to be sustainable for you so that you're enjoying it, even though it is kind of maximizing those health goals, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, it, yeah, it does make sense. I, it, it is interesting. Um, this, this kind of, uh, we always tend to be, or a lot of people that are trying to accomplish long-term goals kind of see them as extremes, right. And, and that you either have to have this this tasteless uh, salad that has zero fat, zero, you know, nothing, um, or you go all out. And it's, it, it reminds me of a lot of other work in motivation, which shows that like that, that you have to be comfortable living in this middle ground where it's, it's okay. It's the same thing with staying, uh, uh, keeping on track with long-term goals, right? So a lot of people, when they stumble on a long-term goal, um, they, they beat themselves up about it because they feel like they've failed. They've gone from, uh, on the right track to failed, but in the reality, you should be forgiving of yourself. If you're forgiving of yourself, it helps you stay on track. And it sounds like, uh, one of the themes of, of what you're saying is being comfortable with that middle area and trying to basically, you know, focus on some of those short-term benefits that might make you feel good and make you, uh, make that, goal pursuit more sustainable. Yeah. And so it might be the case that you might not, you know, reach the goal as quickly as if you were, you know, being as extreme, but it is, it's more sustainable. And so we think it's better for, for persistence. People can kind of stick with it in the long run. Um, and I know we've been talking a lot about food, but I've also studied this in the context of exercise. And I think this is where sometimes I get pushback from people who they think, oh no, I need, I need my workout to be really intense, right? It can't be enjoyable. It can't be fun. Like it needs to be almost painful. Uh, But we find in our studies that that's not the case. You should actually think about, you know, incorporating fun, not just into like your meal choices and, you know, thinking about taste, but also for exercise to try and create something that you can actually persist in over time. Because what you're trying to do is build a habit eventually. Yeah. Yeah. This, uh, the the word I always think of is this sustainability, right? We, We, uh, I have to run, you know, yeah. So your workout has to be intense and miserable, uh, uh, versus, you know, walking, you know, walking, there's actually some, you know, you actually feel good when you're walking as opposed to sort of, you know, your CrossFit type workout where you, where it's uh, a lot more intense. Um, so, so that's really interesting. Uh, now in terms of other, cognitive processes that are involved with this idea of, uh, of, of making consumer decisions. Um, some of your work shows that there are these biases in place that humans, we, we don't think like machines. We don't, uh, we are not perfectly rational, like a computer. We have these sort of blind spots in our thinking. Could you talk a little bit about some of these, uh, blind spots that, that you see in your research that relate to consumer decisions? Yeah, some of the the blind spots I've investigated, and I think this relates to some of the work on information avoidance in particular, is that people um, will sometimes avoid information that might be useful for them, or they might, uh, you know, think, I guess, you know, thinking back to like the food decisions, right, they might uh, 
sort of want to make, a, uh, you know, choose that cake and they don't want to know exactly how many calories are in that cake. And so they avoid certain information potentially. Um, and that's driven, I think, by a couple different different motives. One might be this uh, like emotional motive, right? You just, you want the cake. It's really appetizing and appealing. And so emotionally, you don't want to know how many calories are in it. One of the things that I look at is how the information might actually change your decision. So it's not even how I think I'll feel knowing that the cake is a certain number of calories, but I know deep down, if I knew how many calories were in the cake, I wouldn't be able to actually order it and eat it. And so I'm kind of like putting my blinders on to ignore that information to sort of license myself or give me the the reason to kind of go ahead and order order the cake. And so I think information is a, a place where we often say it's like rational to get more, right? If, especially if it's useful for the decision, the more information, the better. Um, but sometimes we have these different biases that push us to avoiding certain information or even looking for justification, I would say, to avoid information is something else I've been looking at. Yeah, I I completely understand this, as you said, the, the emotional motive, like you don't, you know, it, it kind of relates to not to go down a rabbit hole. But when you talk about cognitive dissonance, this idea that that you experience this sort of negative arousal when you sort of, for example, if you see yourself as a healthy person, and then you choose to get dessert, there's this emotional arousal that you experience and you have to resolve most people will attempt to resolve that it seems like avoiding information is a really good strategy to to avoid that that negative emotion um is so in in your perspective um is is there any sort of is there any benefit to putting on the blinders or would, would would you advocate that that you should always try to get as much information as possible? Yeah, I think this is such an interesting question. And I know uh, for one of the papers, we are really grappling with this, right? Like what is the correct thing to do and what essentially is a mistake, right? Is it a mistake to avoid the calorie information, you know, and get that dessert? And I would say certainly not uh, because you don't want to ruin your experience. And like in some cases, right, getting dessert, is appropriate and something that you should do. Um, I think where, where we can say there's maybe a mistake is people, you know, preferring to avoid information, but that they would then use if they had it. So it's sort of a, it's a little bit convoluted, but essentially it's like, if you knew how many calories were in the cake, you wouldn't order the cake. Uh, and so given that sometimes we should order cake, sometimes we should avoid information, I would say. Uh, right. What's, what's, um, I think it's it's also going to come down to like, you know, context as well and certain situations. Like if you're always eating the dessert or you're always engaging in an unhealthy behavior, if you're the type of person who's always avoiding information, maybe there's some mistake there, but. Um, and, well, it also, it, it's kind of an adjacent idea, but sometimes, you know, if you give a, a child like a weird food uh, and they like it, uh, like uh, what's in it? And you, well, I can't, I, I can't tell you what's in it. Cause you're not going to like it. It's like, well, okay. You know, you don't want, I'm, I, I'm trying to convince you, you don't want to know what's in it because it's going to bias you away from it. Uh, is that sort of the, a similar phenomenon? Yeah, I think so. This is, if you say child, but this also happens. My like brother-in-law is the same way. Like there's food that his mom, like, even though he's an adult, like won't tell him what she puts in it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I think we're always trying to do that is sort of, you know, trick ourselves a little bit. Uh, so I think sometimes, you know, maybe it's rational to have more information, but it's not always the most beneficial for us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so in the same idea, uh, some of my some of the work I did when I was uh, in graduate school um, looked at uh, looked at uh, factors that would influence how you focus on information, uh, specifically my research looked at how time would make a difference. So if you're, uh, if you're making a decision about, for example, uh, donating blood, um, if it's, you know, three days in advance, uh, a lot of circumstantial things creep in. Uh, well, I don't know if I have the time I've got to run errands. I don't know if I have time, even though donating blood is really important to me. Um, I, I just, there's too many 
uh, immediate factors that, that are at play. So I'm going to say no, but when you ask them three months in advance, would you like to donate blood? People are more likely to make decisions that are consistent with their deeply held values. Um, could you talk a little bit about, about how the situation or, or how other factors like time might impact a, a consumer decision? I think the time idea is really interesting um, because I think whenever you push out, you kind of have a longer horizon. I think we tend to see people making decisions more in line with what they feel they ought to do. So it's it's interesting that you said it's sort of it's it's more consistent with what they would prefer, maybe in terms of like what they think is morally correct. Because um, I think for us, what we would expect actually is that the, you know, if you're asking people, for example, like, do you want to know? the calories in your meal at this event you're going to in a month, people would actually be more likely to say yes when they have more time because they can, you know, they're maybe thinking more in terms of this like long-term focus. Whereas when it's like, oh, I'm going to go tomorrow, you know, I really don't want to know because I want to be able to eat eat the the food. And so I think having that like temptation there, um, you know, closer up in time could actually lead people to be more likely to avoid the information. And so that might be one one intervention to think about making some of these decisions in advance where you think you're going to, you know, act more in terms of what you think you ought to do or, or should do kind of like a pre-commitment. Now you've done some, uh, some very specific work looking at uh, like even deeper dives into sort of food decisions um, in the sense that uh, you, you've looked at how um how individuals might estimate calories in, in different products. Could you talk about some of that research? Yeah. And I think this relates, you know, a little bit to the biases that you were talking about. So there's like a lot of different sort of biases that come into play when people are making decisions and choices. And so the calorie estimation research was really interesting because we kind of stumbled onto this asking a different question. We were interested in just how people are estimating calories and we measured their calorie estimates using two different modes. So for some people, we would say, how many calories do you think is in this you know, McDonald's cheeseburger on a scale from very few to very many? Uh, and we'd also say, okay, now estimate, right? Give a numeric estimate for how, like the number of calories you think is, is in that cheeseburger. And so you think that these two questions should move in the same way, or right? if I think the McDonald's cheeseburger has a lot of calories, I should also give high numeric estimate. But what we were finding in our studies was that uh, we were actually getting discrepancies when uh, the food was sort of trading off in terms of whether it was healthy or not and how big it was. And so I'll give you an example. So thinking about right, a McDonald's cheeseburger, which is actually pretty small, it's not a huge portion, and a Subway, uh, what is it, like footlong sandwich, right? And so people think McDonald's is unhealthy and they think Subway is healthy. Uh, but the McDonald's cheeseburger is actually probably a smaller portion than a footlong sandwich from Subway. Right. And so what you what you find is that when you ask people, how many calories do you think are in a McDonald's cheeseburger from very few to very many? They're like, oh, there's a lot, right? It's an unhealthy food. If you ask them how many are in a turkey sub from Subway, that's maybe, you know, 12 inches. They're like, oh, you know, Subway is relatively healthy. And so I'm going to say relatively few calories, and so uh, when you ask people numerically, they're actually more likely to incorporate the portion size. And so if you say instead, what's the number of calories in the McDonald's cheeseburger or the number wow. of calories in the, um, the Subway sandwich, then they're actually thinking about what size is the food, not just whether it's unhealthy or healthy. Um, and so people are actually more accurate when they're doing those numeric estimates, but you get these interesting reversals depending on what mode people use. And what's what's really interesting to me is actually... If you look at nutrition advice, mm -hmm. nutritionists give different different sort of estimates or different advice. Sometimes they say form a numeric estimate, but sometimes they say, you know, you're never going to know the exact number of calories. And so just try and judge if it's relatively high or low. And we find that people make different choices based on what kind of method they're using, which can lead them to overconsume in some situations. Mm -hmm. it, it also made me think about how individuals categorize uh foods like you you had mentioned like well subway activates this notion of health and so it kind of cascades into all the other 
all the other decisions, right? It, it, it almost like seems like you might underweigh the specific Subway sandwich because Subway's already activated health or something like that. Um, is that is that something you think is going on? This sort of uh, this categorization process, you know, you used to see it. Uh, it's been a while since Snackwell launched, but in the '90s, you know, there was this sort of pushback against high fat desserts, um, and so Snackwell comes out and says, "Here, it tastes the same, uh, but there's no fat," and so people would, "Oh, yeah, I'll." I can buy the snack well, and now I can eat, you know, the entire box of snack well, whereas before I would only have a handful of Oreos um, and it would arguably would have a worse impact, right? If you're buying the healthy food uh, and eating more of it is still going to be more calories than kind of what basically basically what you're saying with with McDonald's. Um, but does this categorization process, this concept that gets activated of health and, and pairing that with a company? Is that is that at play? Definitely. So I definitely think the categorization is part of it where people, the first thing that they process is, is this a healthy item or not? And the brand is going to influence that judgment of whether it's healthy or not. So if it's a Subway sandwich and people think of Subway as healthy, they're going to think about the food as healthy. Um, so what we're finding is that when people are trying to judge of food in terms of relatively few or relatively more calories, what we call sort of um, magnitude estimates, they really just rely on that health perception. So they're thinking about, right, is this a healthy food? Is this a healthy brand? And they're not really taking into account the portion size. They've really just laid on that categorization like you were talking about um, and made the decision based on that. And it's only when they start to incorporate and think about the number of calories, which is a little bit more of a, it's like deliberate, like calculative process, they start to think about the portion size. And so there's some work talking about um, the primacy, I would say, of type. So whether something is healthy or unhealthy and saying that portion size is secondary. And so it's definitely the case, I would say, that people kind of anchor on that healthiness categorization and then maybe fail to adjust in some places for the actual amount of food that they might be. Uh, consuming. So to to wrap up this sort of this discussion about making choices, um, what is your practical advice for um, for using information? In, in other, uh, you know, I I get that there's sort of a um, a debate, you know, whether or not making the the moral or the value decision is is always the case obviously you, you have to you have to you know let loose every now and then but what would your practical advice be in terms of uh you know how to think about these these food decisions i think my first advice would be to think about what the goal is for the situation and so from there i think it gives you uh, an idea of whether or not to get the information or whether or not to even think about, right, the calories in numeric terms as I'm thinking about. So, you know, is this a situation where you do want to go with those long-term goals or is this a situation where maybe you consciously want to go with the short-term goal? And I think it comes back to your question of, you know, is information, you know, is getting information or avoiding information a mistake or not? So I think if you can identify what your primary goal is in the, the situation. If it's long-term, then probably getting the information is going to be what's best for you. If it's more short-term, if you want to protect, you know, your emotions or protect your feelings in the moment, I would say then maybe avoiding the information is what's best. Um, that would be my advice. Great. So uh, I want to pivot a little bit and uh, go from the the mind of the consumer to uh, marketers and and companies because uh, we're constantly bombarded with different types of messaging and different types of marketing advertising and marketers are savvy and and they they know a lot about behavioral science and and motivation um, could you talk a little bit about some uh, some examples of of how marketers and companies uh, will key in on on different types of human motivation and use it to to promote their product. Yeah, so I talk a lot about this in some of the classes that I teach uh, to my MBA students. So I, I love getting in the mind of marketers and thinking about how they're using consumers' motives and goals to influence behavior. And one of the things that I frequently see them doing is using 
I would say like ideal versus actual self to create a need. And so what do I mean by that? I mean, you know, as a consumer, you might not think that you need to buy a certain product or a certain brand of razor, for example. Um, But what marketers will do is try to, you know, make it seem like your current state is either diminished, right? You're not as well off as you think you are. And so you need to buy this razor to kind of improve yourself. Um, Or they'll say, you know, wherever you are is fine, but you want to um, think about like an aspirational state to try and encourage people to make a purchase. And so basically creating this gap between the self, right? So your ideal self is kind of further away from where you actually think it is to motivate someone to to buy. And and you see this for a lot of different products. Um, I think even like luxury goods, we often think about as being more aspirational, but you tend to see this too, even for um, like cheaper purchases as well that people are, are making. So marketers often coming in and trying to induce a need by creating this discrepancy. Yeah, you you said the the magic word there, which is need. Uh, if you're if you're absorbing or consuming media with with some marketing, the 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 main lie that I that I can sometimes catch myself with is I I need this product. I you know I'm uh, I want to soundproof my uh, my office for the podcast, so I I need these panels. And that's, you know, that's the first thought when in reality, there are lots of, there's always alternatives, right? It's, it's almost as, uh, it, it, a lot of it goes back to sort of self, this kind of self-control thing, which is, am I able to have thoughts two and three <laughs> instead of just thought one? And it seems like marketers, sometimes they just want you to have that need thought, like yeah, I have to have these, these shoes in order to get the, the, the aspirational self. I need the Nikes to be the uh, to be the best athlete I can be. Definitely. And I think you see this in the way that they promote their product, even on websites, right? Like how they, they're making it seem like it's going to solve all your issues or solve all your problems, or even getting people um, like partnering with influencers, for example, that might uh, convey that aspect or that tone, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, what's also interesting to me is the uh, the the dynamic uh, in terms of this, the different ways of persuading individuals uh, to buy a certain product. You know, if you grew up in the 80s and the 90s, you saw lots of television commercials. They were all centered around uh, facts and figures, right? If you're buying a car, the, the car commercial would tell you, you know, the horsepower and the tow load and all, all these, all the, a lot of facts and figures. I mean, to a certain extent, there were some emotional uh, mess. There's some emotional messaging, but a lot more facts and figures in the 80s and 90s. Whereas uh, today, it's so much more about feelings. Um, if you see car commercials, um, you're not. Chances are, you're not going to learn specific pieces of information. They're going to try to create a feeling and and have you relate to uh, someone on the screen. Um, could you talk a little bit about um, about the, the sort of trend and 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 what marketers have realized over the course of twenty years? I think there's probably two things going on. I think as a space becomes more competitive, so as you get more competitors into the market um, to differentiate yourself, it's no longer enough to be the fastest or to have that right I, like that um, sort of the numeric difference. It becomes very easy for competitors to kind of match on that right so if your sort of point of differentiation i would say is you know we have this attribute and you kind of make that clear like they might have done in the past then it's very easy for competitors to kind of come in and do the same thing what you get with um sort of scaffolding up and harnessing uh, emotions or trying to evoke a feeling is it becomes harder for competitors to kind of own that space right um it's it's something that you might be able to carve a, a space out of. So if you can say that we own security or safety, right, for Volvo, they kind of try and own that emotional space. Right. Uh, it's it's easier to differentiate yourself. You're no longer kind of, you know, pointing on a number. And it's um, something that consumers really care about too. And so I would say uh, that's that's sort of one is like this, this kind of competition aspect. I also often sort of teach this in my class because it means that if you are touching into like a human emotion or a feeling, it's going to apply really broadly across humanity, right? The higher level kind of need that you can get to, like be it 
belongingness or power or security, these sort of like fundamental needs that people have. Um, it, it's something that everybody is seeking or looking for. And so instead of trying to tell people, right, you need this one product for X, Y, Z reason, having that kind of feeling be evoked makes people see themselves as, oh, this might be a product for me. Like I have that, um, that resonates with me potentially. Yeah. Yeah. And, and even more so above, above an emotional message is that message that appeals to that identity, something about the self. I mean, I, 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 every time I used to drive by uh, a Chick-fil-A, there aren't many in my area here, but if you drive by a Chick-fil-A and you see these, these line, these cars going out the, uh, out the drive-through, I'm convinced that it, it has little to do with chicken and more to do with people uh, sort of scratching their identity itch, which is Chick-fil-A has sort of a, this is uh, enmeshed with a sort of a religious community. They're closed on Sundays. And I, like, I suspect that, that a, a large motivator for people going to Chick-fil-A is that they're getting food, but they're, they also uh, feel like they're living their true selves and sort of supporting a cause. And it's, that's important to them. I mean, that's an extreme example. I mean, that's, that's the one that pops into my head, but um, do you think that that identity piece is, is also something that marketers are, are using? I think so. And I think it's not only that marketers are using it, the consumers are seeking it out, right? They want mm -hmm. to distinguish themselves by identifying with certain brands and they look for that. And it also, I think what's interesting, you're sort of talking about this, maybe like more moral cause or sort of like religious identity, but um, often brands are the ones who are engaging in a lot of these um, social responsibility initiatives. And so they're, right, they're trying to differentiate themselves, but they're donating to, um, right, to save some environmental initiative or they're uh, providing mm -hmm. goods to a lower income community and consumers by that and that's also a way for them to feel like they're doing good as well and so even more so than um you know just identity i think some of these other practices are also ways that like brands are, are sort of pulling consumers in and making that connection with them yeah i think i mean there aren't many uh there aren't many companies i can think of that don't have this nonprofit branch now uh that they really put up up to the forefront and um i'm curious if if there's going to be a, a backlash at some point uh, in the sense of, do, do you think that, that at some point consumers are going to say, um, you know, I, I want, I just want a, a good product. I, I, I sort of feel like I'm bombarded with uh, this values aspect of, you know, companies love to tell people who they donate to. I feel like at some point it's going to get too far. Um, I know, you know, uh, the, the NFL is always um, is always promoting all of their sort of community initiatives and ignoring the fact that sometimes there are some elements about the game that aren't very competitive that they, they need to adjust. And like, I'm wondering if, if at some point, like a, a pendulum swing, if we're ever going to go back away from the values and the feel good stuff back to something more, uh, more practical and objective. I wouldn't rule it out. I think, there's definitely a possibility for it. I think right now what's happening is that if you don't have that component, it becomes, you're sort of like the odd man out. And so everyone is trying to add that component in because it's not even a factor that like differentiates companies. It's like, if you don't have that, then I won't consider you. But I do think consumers in the end are price sensitive and they ultimately want a good product. And so if they see the other things as sort of distracting from that or as fluff, um, or even, you know, it's it's no longer seen as authentic from the company, like, they don't see companies as being authentic in these missions, I think that they might push back. But... Yeah. Uh, let's talk about uh, digital marketing for a second. Um, I mean, m marketing is, is very different uh, when you're talking about uh, a personal device that you carry with you at all times versus something more passive, you know, a, a billboard, for example, uh, the, you know, you have different goals. If you put something on a billboard versus you're, uh, you're serving someone an ad on their phone. Um, could you uh, talk a little bit about, um, about some of the, some of the most, uh, impactful tactics that marketers use 
um, specifically related to our smartphones? I think the smartphone space is, is so interesting. And I, st I still think it's a place where marketers maybe haven't quite gotten it right. So I saw this fact the other day, we had a guest speaker in my class and she said that, you know, so few transactions are actually occurring on your smartphone. So even though I think we're all exposed to these sponsored content and these ads and these pop-ups on our phones, they're not actually effective in terms of converting into sales, right? A lot of sales are still still happening on uh, companies own consumer platforms or on, you know, through your PC. And so I see that companies are engaging in a lot of tactics, right? They're doing a lot of attention grabbing things, or they're trying to create, uh, I would say, ads that are trying to go viral, right? These kind of TikTok style dances um, try to draw attention. But uh, ultimately, I think consumers, when they're on their phones, they want to be entertained or they're looking for a social connection and they're not necessarily looking to purchase at that point. And so um, I still think it's a place where marketers maybe haven't quite gotten it correct, or they can get their message across, maybe they can build awareness, but I don't know if it's necessarily converting into sales for them. And so what do you think, um, Put if you were to put on your uh, a marketing hat for a moment, um, and, and you were to advise a, spe a specific product, a company with a specific product, what to do. Uh, what are some what are some things that you would you would advise? This is a this is a good question. I think this is like the million dollar question, right. <laughs> probably above my pay grade. But um, I think what I would I would maybe I think what I see as effective are these um, sort of influencers when they're promoting things, right? So I think mm, you know, yeah. and and even like um, sponsorships are still really effective from that perspective. And so if you see uh, someone who you admire, or look up to, or someone that you're going to advice pushing a product. I think that's still effective. What I, what I don't think is effective is um, if you're on Instagram or you're on your social media account and there's sponsored content there. I don't think that's necessarily converting, but I still think people are looking to, um, they want advice and they want recommendations because there's just so many products in the marketplace. And so they do need some sort of guidance to like whittle that down. And so I do think, still think those um those campaigns, those tactics are effective, but the kind of pop-up ads, I don't see those as really being useful. Is I'm not aware if, if there's any research on this area, but um, to your to your knowledge, is there any sort of empirical work looking at uh, looking at spokes spokespeople and 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 the extent to which you know if you see a, a celebrity promoting something. Um, can like can you predict that someone is more likely to to buy that product if they like that celebrity? There's a few pieces of work I've seen. So some I've seen is on sort of the match. I think getting the match right is really important. So I think um, if it's seen as something that the person would actually use, or uh, there's some sort of like authentic connection there, there's basically like a reason why they're putting that product in front of you. I think that works. Um, I've also seen some things on disclosure, which are pretty interesting too, where, you know, a lot of these influencers have to say that they get paid to push the product. And that doesn't seem to hurt the, the sales necessarily, as long as there is that good fit. Um, so I do see this as uh as still being effective. Um, but again, I think to your earlier comment too about is there going to be, is it going to be too much? I think that's a, that's a question that maybe, you know, people might get overwhelmed or if um, an, a particular person is recommending many different things, it's going to become uh, questioned. Mm -hmm. uh, so to wrap up, I want to, let, let's see how, how practical we can go. Um, you mentioned earlier sort of know what your goals are when you're entering into a, a retail environment or a digital environment. Um, if you had to put together, let's call it the, the, the target toolkit, um, every target, very popular department store, um, some things to keep in mind. If you, if you want to go into this retail environment and you want to avoid, uh, let's, let's say you want to avoid, uh, you know, going for two things and leaving with 10, right? That's a, a common a, a common story you hear about people that go to these types of stores. But if you had to build sort of a, a target toolkit, some things to keep in mind so that you can make better decisions, what would you what would you put in that toolkit? 
I think the first thing I would do is leave your credit cards at home. So maybe, you know, take wow. as much money as you think you're going to be spending. I think that would be really effective. <laughs> um, I think also, I mean, having like a list, right? I think that pre-commitment component, having a list, um, making sure that you don't deviate from that. And then I think when we talked about information avoidance, I actually think where it could be useful would be something at Target. So for me, when I'm going into the store, I'm always tempted to go to the displays that I know are going to tempt me, right? Like the whatever seasonal displays they have. Um, if you can try and avoid those, right? Or even giving yourself like a really short time when you're going into the store, I think that would be uh, an effective tool to try and help to avoid maybe some of these impulse purchases. Yeah. Yeah. It, and uh, it's interesting you say that because I always go back to this sort of um, dynamic between is is the solution internal and sort of a willpower and an, like mastering your internal monologue so that you can talk yourself out of buying something that you don't need? Or is it something a lot more practical in the sense of uh of of avoid like don't go by the display like don't rely on your willpower um it seems as though these are like two completely different strategies but it it seems like maybe the solution is you have to use both i would say if you can use uh, like I call it like situation selection or like, uh, right. I think to the extent that you are not relying on your willpower, you're going to be much more effective at reaching your goals. Um, this is sort of the new, I think, perspective, like how the research is going. Uh, it's really hard to talk yourself out of something um, because part of you wants it. And so you're battling yourself. And I think that's a losing battle over time. Um, so that's why I'm suggesting some of these like situational strategies, uh, I think it'll, they're they're more effective, but that's yeah, my perspective. <laughs> see, I I tend to agree this this sort of creating an environment that makes it easier to make good decisions is a lot better than relying on willpower. The question I haven't been able to answer is if that is true, where where does discipline play a role? Because you know, you see on social media, there are lots of people that, uh, lots of uh, influencers and their their product is discipline. You know, uh, Jocko Willenick is, is a TikTok guy, uh, you know, even Joe Rogan to a certain extent, he's, they push this like discipline. Discipline is everything. Discipline is, and like, I agree with them in, in a sense, like you should be like targeting you know, being, making better decisions through discipline, you know, don't think too much about whether or not you should go for a jog, skip the the, the debate, just do it anyway. Right. And then I, then I go back again to, well, I need to focus on rearranging my environment to make this an easier decision. Where, where do you think discipline falls? How does it fit into the puzzle? I think the example that you're giving, right, where it's like, I, I shouldn't even have the decision of, am I going to go for a run or not? It's, I'm going to go for a run. I could still think about that as being something that you kind of set that you're, you're not kind of struggling over, right? I don't think about that as like a willpower decision either. It's like, if I don't even give myself an option, I almost think there's no even discipline there because I'm not trying to, you know, I'm not trying to argue myself off the couch. I'm just saying, this is what I do every Tuesday as I do this. Um, but I don't know if that's what you meant by, uh, by your example. Well, yeah, I, I think it's, if it's a habit, I think if it's a hard habit, the decision part seems to be removed. Like you're sort of chipping away at the, I mean, that's, that's part of the, that's part of the value of creating a habit is that you don't have to debate, you don't have to have an internal debate, but at the same time, we should be good at thinking. We should be better at thinking. And I don't know, I haven't been able to figure out where that where that fits and how much you should lean on your internal uh, monologue. Yeah, I think the more that I think about it, the more I'm okay with saying not like I don't rely on my willpower. I, 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 I even think maybe some of these decisions that you make in advance require willpower, right? Like, setting yourself up, putting your gym clothes out the day before, 
right? That does require this idea that I'm going to have to wake up and go for a run. So I still think you could think about it in terms of discipline and willpower. But I think what you want to avoid is a situation where, yeah, you don't want to have that fight between yourself where you're like in bed. It's like, do I get up and go for the run or do I stay in bed? Because that's going to be a losing battle. Um, if you make it almost like automatic, like, no, I set this stuff out. I already decided yesterday that I'm going for a run. You kind of try and take that internal struggle out of the equation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's okay. And I think you're you're more likely to set yourself up for success. Well, thank you so much uh, for being on today. Uh, it was a, a great conversation. Hopefully, uh, hopefully, if you're listening, uh, you are now armed uh, with uh, with some some ideas to help you make better decisions in the marketplace. Uh, thank you so much for being on, uh, Caitlin Woolley. Thank you so much. This has been such a fun conversation. I really enjoyed it. For more on Caitlin, visit her website at CaitlinWoolley.com. That's K-A-I-T-L-I-N-W-O-O-L-L-E-Y.com. Or follow her on Twitter at Caitlin underscore Woolley. If you enjoy this podcast, please share an episode with two of your friends. You can text them a link to an episode or share one on your favorite social media platform. Follow the Why Do We Do That Facebook page for updates and additional content. Don't forget to rate and write a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow on Instagram at Why Do We Do That Podcast or Twitter at WDWDTPod. And as always, feel free to email me with comments or guest suggestions at Why Do We Do That Podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Dr. Ryan Moyer. Hoping you found some answers to the question, why do we do that? <laughs>